welcome to the War Studies Podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. Whatever the underlying reasons are, the effect of maintaining the separation, we argue, is to uphold a colonial fantasy according to which Europe is somehow inherently more peaceful and gender progressive than the global south. Today, in a special episode marking 20 years since the UN passed Resolution 1325 on women, peace and security, we're talking to two experts working in the field of WPS about why it's time we consider refugee women as worthy of international attention, protection and inclusion under the WPS agenda. Imagine fleeing because your daughter is at risk of being kidnapped, forced to marry a militant fighter, or trafficked into sexual slavery. These were the words of Suad Alami, a women's rights activist and attorney from Iraq, during her address to the United Nations Security Council at the UN headquarters in New York City on the 28th of October, 2014. She then pronounced, We call on the Security Council and all UN member states to use a gender lens to address the challenges forced by women who have been forcibly displaced as well as across all peace and security efforts and to recommit to working towards the full implementation of the women, peace and security agenda. Alami's intervention took place during the Security Council's annual debate on women, peace and security. This debate every year marks the anniversary of the adoption of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325 on women, peace and security. After decades of campaigning by women's organizations, Resolution 1325 was successfully passed on October 31st, 2000. It marked a watershed moment in women's struggle for better inclusion and representation in matters relating to international conflict and peace. From this recognition sprung national and international legislation, funding streams, policies and advocacy, supported by thousands of activists worldwide, as well as the likes of Hillary Clinton, Michelle Bachelet and Angelina Jolie. As the Women, Peace and Security agenda grew, and interventions multiplied around the world to better address the needs of the conflict-affected women, it drew on and constructed an archetypical figure of this woman as located in the conflict zone. At the opening debate in 2014, Suad Alami broke with tradition by drawing member states' attention to women and girls forcibly displaced by war, refugee women, carving out space for an emerging but contested inclusion of a new figure in WPS, the conflict-affected woman on the move. In the wake of Europe's so-called refugee crisis, the whole notion of who is affected by conflict and insecurity, and where those people are, is increasingly under challenge. Refusing to address the plight of asylum seekers located at Europe's borders, we suggest, reveals the colonial underbelly of the women, peace and security agenda. 
its tendency to think that conflict-affected people are over there, not over here. It's time to examine how refugee awareness can unsettle the colonial thinking that still sticks to a range of women, peace and security-inspired policies. Hello and welcome to this episode, the first in a special three-part series for the War Studies podcast, marking 20 years of women, peace and security. My name is Lizzie Ellen and this podcast is produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen and Aisha Khan. Today we're joined by two very special guests. Dr. Aiko Holvikivi is an ESCR postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Gender Studies and an associate academic at the Centre for Women, Peace and Security, both at LSE. Her research examines transnational movements of people and of knowledges and how these produce security or insecurity along gendered and racialized lines. Dr. Audrey Reeves is an assistant professor in political science at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University in the US. Her research and teaching interests include gender and global governance, peace building and conflict recovery, and the role of bodies and emotions in collective memory. Thank you both so much for joining us today. And what a crucial issue to be touching on regarding our celebration of 20 years of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. In April 2020, you both published an article in the European Journal of International Security on which this introduction was based. This article titled Women, Peace and Security After Europe's Refugee Crisis argues for the inclusion of refugees or women fleeing conflict alongside the traditional women in conflict as worthy of international tension, protection and inclusion within the WPS agenda. As you've just explained, Resolution 1325 concerns the needs and welfare of conflict-affected women in the location of the war. Yet anyone who knows anything about wars and conflict knows fully well that there are always displaced peoples fleeing death and destruction. And as the speaker Suad Alami highlighted, displaced women are in a particularly vulnerable situation. Why did the original WPS not include these women from the start? So, actually, the inaugural Women, Peace and Security Resolution 1325 did mention refugees, recognizing forced displacement and its attendant dangers as an impact of conflict that affects women and girls in very specific ways. However, this attention to refugee questions was articulated in very narrow terms in 1325, as well as in the Security Council's subsequent resolutions on women, peace and security. These resolutions name a handful of actors who have responsibilities in relation to forced displacement. These include the parties to armed conflict, who should respect international law and the humanitarian nature of refugee camps, and the UN actors who manage refugee camps, for them to attend to gender-specific risks experienced by women and girls and their humanitarian needs. The obligations of UN member states in this framework are limited to supporting gender training efforts of the UN Refugee Agency. What is missing in the WPS resolutions, we argue, is an emphasis on the obligations that all member states have to provide a right to asylum and to respond to the needs of refugee women and girls within or at their borders, especially when those member states are not considered to be in conflict. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so why now are we seeking to broaden this definition? Um, it's similar to the first question. I mean, women refugees are not a new thing. So why has there, has there been campaigning for this to happen in the last 20 years, or is it a relatively new thing? In countries of the global south, refugees are already integrated in women, peace and security in the majority 
um, of, of countries. So Europe, as well as other countries in the quote-unquote political West, responded differently because there's been a tradition in those countries of treating women, peace and security as a foreign policy issue rather than a domestic and foreign policy issue. But since 2015, with the refugee crisis in Europe, it's becoming increasingly difficult to ignore the insecurity of women and girls at the borders of Europe. They are more numerous than before. They count for a higher proportion of asylum seekers than they used to. And they also die at a higher rate than men when attempting to seek refuge in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Can you describe the kinds of insecurities and dangers faced by these women and girls entering Europe from war-stricken countries? We often perceive Europe to be a civilised, safe and secure domain versus the kind of insecure, conflict-ridden global south. Um, Do these women's experiences turn that notion on its head? Yes, in many ways, very much so. First, we know that the hardening of Europe's borders both through closing down legal and safe routes for asylum seekers, as well as through the policy of actively pushing back migrants um, into especially Libya and Turkey, has made the journey to Europe more dangerous for all displaced people. It has also produced specifically gendered forms of insecurity, such as the expectation of women to use sex to pay smugglers for their passage. And these conditions of insecurity often persist when asylum seekers enter Europe. Researchers and non-governmental organizations have documented widespread harassment and sexual violence within overcrowded reception centers, with such striking reports as women having to use empty water bottles as makeshift toilets in order to avoid leaving their tent at night. And such precarious situations can become even worse in the blink of an eye. On the 8th of September this year, the Moria camp on the Greek island of Lesbos burned down, leaving some 13,000 people without shelter. In response to their plight, European states have made what can only be described as limited and wholly inadequate efforts to provide relief and to work towards resettlement, instead trapping refugees on the island in squalid conditions. Their situation makes it painfully clear that Europe is not a safe, secure or civilized place from the point of view of migrants and asylum seekers. Yeah, I mean, it's actually really shocking um, and it's not something that we tend to hear about, I think, um, enough. Um, So uh, obviously clearly an issue that really needs tackling. Um, And even when these women do make it to their country of destination after a perilous and traumatic journey, and they find themselves in the asylum system. You also argue in your paper that they continue to be discriminated against in terms of gender. Can you explain that a bit more? Yes, so there are several reasons for this, and they mostly have to do um, with asylum laws and policies that historically have been gender blind. First of all, asylum laws and policies typically have not recognized gender-specific forms of insecurity. They struggle to see that a woman who is sent back to her country of origin may be victim of gendered forms of violence, such as sexual assault, or that she may be fleeing a country for fleeing those specific forms of violence that women are more likely to experience. Second, asylum regimes have struggled to acknowledge that women 
may be political actors in their own right, and therefore they can be targeted for their political opinions or activism. If a woman is only accepted as a refugee on the grounds of her ties to a husband or a father, who is considered the person who really is at risk of persecution, she then has little protection against the violence she may experience within her own family. Third, the organization of reception centers often makes women and girls vulnerable by failing to provide separate spaces, such as showers, bathrooms, sleeping quarters, that are reserved for women and girls. Having to share spaces with men makes women and girls more at risk of kidnappings, sexual violence and domestic violence, leading to the kind of emergency uh, strategies that Aiko mentioned above. Yeah, again, it's just completely tragic. Um, and you strikingly, in the paper, refer to 13 European countries, including the UK, where forcibly displaced women seeking asylum in Europe remain completely invisible in the national action plans on WPS. Can you explain a bit more what an action plan is and why these countries continue to see WPS as simply part of a foreign policy area um, rather than, you know, uh, something that's domestically happening in their own back, back, backyard? Is it to do with funding or red tape? Or do you think there's something more insidious at play here, which echoes ideas of fortress Europe or, as you refer to it, Europe's war on immigration? Yes, so our research concentrates on National Action Plans, or NAPs for short, and these are state-level policies which are drawn up to implement the UN Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security. And we highlight, in agreement with scholars like Laura Shepard, that European National Action Plans are notable for the fact that they tend to frame WPS as an external concern and as a foreign policy issue, as you mentioned, Lizzie, rather than as a question with internal implications, as many countries in the Global South do. One outcome of this external orientation is, as you mentioned, to not include refugee women within that country itself in that state's National Action Plan. The reason this happens is usually explained through the fact that the women, peace and security agenda is concerned with conflict situations and that European countries are not in conflict as, as conflict is traditionally understood. In our research, Audrey and I set out to counter this separation by demonstrating that conflict-affected women are indeed in Europe and at its borders, and that conflict-affectedness is therefore not a geographically bound condition. Further, Europe's war on immigration has meant that the distinction between the conflict zone that these women have fled and their experience in Europe's borderlands might not be straightforwardly experienced as a distinction between a conflict zone and a zone of peace. The reasons for European states wanting to hold on to this distinction are, of course, multifaceted, and to some extent, they depend on the country in question. In the UK specifically, the refusal by the government to consider Northern Ireland as having been in conflict informs how the government interprets its obligations under the WPS agenda. Other reasons have to do with institutional path dependency, such as locating the Women, Peace and Security agenda under the remit of foreign ministries. Whatever the underlying reasons are, the effect 
of maintaining the separation, we argue, is to uphold a colonial fantasy, according to which Europe is somehow inherently more peaceful and gender progressive than the global South. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you make. Um, can you go into a bit more detail then about this? Because, you know, this year we've seen the protests for, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, people starting to really question these uh, hangovers from the colonial age and starting to look at kind of the structural racism that exists in the West and and certainly World Jeff Refugee Week, um, we in the Department of War Studies questioned some of these notions and tried to show how, um, you know, refugees are part of this kind of post-colonial era. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, your points on, on this issue? Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that, that, um, you know, like that it's black and white, it's them and us, uh, because that's exactly what it is, right? It's all about race. Um, so recently, and you mentioned Black Lives Matter, um, so recently, Ibram Kendi, um, who's a US scholar specializing on questions of, of race in the US in particular, has written a book, and he talks about the question of the black body in the United States context, and how black neighborhoods and black bodies are often immediately imagined as carrying violence with them, carrying conflict. And there's a similar forms of assumption um, that frame the way that development and security policy globally is imagined. So countries where people are mostly black and brown are imagined to be more violent than countries where people are white. And this has to do with the colonial imaginary that was developed and sustained during the, the expansion era, like the European expansion and colonial era, in order to justify colonialism. And these ideas did not disappear overnight. They still frame the way that we think about a lot of um, like foreign policy areas and issues. So they're not, uh, like the Women, Peace and Security agenda does not exist in a bubble. It's connected to broader discourses of race and uh, of, of racial hierarchy. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, but I mean, I suppose there are some countries out there um, who are actually in including refugee women in their WPS action plans. Can we talk about which countries those are and what effect this is having and, and what other countries, other European countries can learn from this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our research data dates back to 2018. So there um, may be more countries today uh, that include uh, refugees. And I think there is more discussion about it today than there were um, you know, like back in 2018. So, but at the time, there were four countries that included refugee women at their own borders only. And these were Finland, Iceland, Ireland, and Italy. And then there were five more countries that addressed the question of refugee women, both at home and abroad. And these were Belgium, the Czech Republic, France, Germany, and Spain. So in total, these nine countries count for about 40% of the European countries that did have a policy on women, peace and security at the time. Now, most European countries that do address asylum as part of their women, peace and security policy 
do so in terms of protection. For instance, France committed to increase consideration of issues linked to gender and violence against women in asylum procedures, directly trying to address some of the challenges that we mentioned earlier. Also, some states were planning measures related to staffing, such as the provision of gender training for professionals involved in service provision in um, um, reception centers and in relation to asylum seekers more generally. So all of these measures are important. Nonetheless, we think they still leave open the question of women's participation in decision-making and their consult, like the consultation of refugee women and girls regarding how um, their security should be preserved and enhanced in conditions of forced displacement. So you've talked to, obviously you just mentioned now the importance of, of women being involved in decision-making and in being agents for the change that they want to see and being able to foster their own security protection rather than victims. Can you give examples of where this has really worked and what difference it can make? Absolutely. So this is one of the key differences between the women, peace and security agenda and the asylum laws that Audrey mentioned earlier. What made 1325 such a momentous shift was that not only did it draw attention to the ways in which women suffered as a consequence of war, at the same time, it portrayed women as competent and knowledgeable actors in world politics and insisted on women's right to participate in decision-making in the realm of international peace and security. And in our research, we found examples in Europe of refugee and migrant women's activism around women, peace and security, which point towards the need for prioritizing this aspect. For example, in Ireland, Akidwa, an organization advocating on behalf of migrant women, lobbied for the inclusion of migrant women in defense and police forces, lobbied for funding for programs that would connect diaspora women from armed conflict zones who now live in Ireland, and lobbied for education opportunities. And Ireland's National Action Plan has taken some of these recommendations on board. In 2017, Danish activist Mina Jaff addressed the Security Council on this issue, arguing for the need not only to address the security needs of displaced women, but also to work with displaced women to support them in becoming advocates for themselves and for their communities. That well, sounds like some steps are being taken in the right direction then. Um, but in order to bring about the whole scale changes that we've discussed and that you advocate for, would we need to see a new UN resolution um, passed to recognise the inclusion of refugee women? Well, a Security Council resolution that addresses the needs and priorities of forcibly displaced women and the rights to asylum also beyond conflict settings would most certainly help establish this as a key norm in the agenda. This, however, is unlikely to happen anytime soon because the states that sit on the UN Security Council do not, as we discussed, want to portray themselves as being affected by conflict because this opens them up to all forms of, of scrutiny and potentially intervention. But in the meantime, the differences that we found in how different countries address forced displacement within their national action plans demonstrates that a new Security Council resolution is not the only way to develop women, peace and security policy. 
several states in Europe, as well as in other parts of the world, have included refugee questions in their national action plans, even though they're not obligated to do so by a Security Council resolution. And so we would argue that these states are implementing the, the spirit or the intent of women, peace and security by attending to the needs and priorities of conflict affected women in all settings. And in doing so, they're both interpreting and extending the mandate of this agenda overall. Um, if we were to see um, this agenda broadened to include more countries taking responsibility for putting refugee women in the action plans they're forging, would this also help with the status of women refugees fleeing other conflict zones, so outside of Europe, um, such as the US as a result of violence in Latin American countries? And what about the notion of what we always come across when people talking about refugees and economic migrants? Um, because obviously that's a huge problem in the US, um, the so-called economic migrants who, who travel northwards across the US border. Um, but clearly, you know, the women who are doing that journey are under just as much duress and um, trauma and, and danger as, as the women fleeing into Europe. Um, so how might the status of these women perceived to be economic migrants change? Thank you. That's a really interesting question. So the first thing to mention here is that the resolutions are not a binding form of international legislation. Nation states still have the sovereign right to um, interpret the resolutions as they prefer and to implement them as they wish. Therefore, I don't think in the United States right now we have a lot of political will, let's say, to um, go in this direction. This being said, the resolutions and the Women, Peace and Security agenda, including the national action plans of European states that we're discussing here, do contribute to create certain standards or norms or um, discourses, way of, ways of thinking about these issues that can be influential in the long run. Now, one of the authors we really draw inspiration from is Gloria Anzaldúa, who was a feminist Chicana writer who wrote a book uh, titled Borderlands. And her writing is really helpful in understanding that the difference between economic migrants and refugees is often hard to establish in practice. Especially right now, many Latin American countries are struggling with both problems of poverty, deep inequality, and violent conflict, and all of these are interrelated. However, in the US, Latin American countries and the conflict they experience are often portrayed um, as spaces of criminality, as opposed to spaces of war. And this contributes to delegitimize the migration as purely economic, or also it contributes to depict migrants themselves as potentially criminals and potentially violent. Now, Anzaldúa highlights that the borderland itself, regardless of the reason why people get to the borderland, this space is inherently violent and carries 
gender-specific risks for women and girls in particular. Therefore, regardless of why women and girls are on the border, women, peace and security is legitimately relevant because they are not at peace and they are not secure. You could say that even for, say, someone who was strictly an economic migrant on the US-Mexico border, they are still, at least in our perspective, potentially usefully included in the remit of the agenda. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I mean, I suppose the counter argument to that would be saying, and this comes on to my next question, which is about the balance between supporting and protecting women in conflict zones in the global south with um, pushing forward this, this agenda of including women fleeing conflict, because I suppose people argue when it comes to so-called economic migrants that, you know, why aren't we funding them in their countries to stimulate the economy, to keep talent, you know, there, to build up these countries that have suffered, you know, post-colonial, from post-colonialism or whatever it is. So how do you um, balance the needs of, of both, you know, women in conflict and women fleeing conflict? Yes. This point is um, very closely related to something that the feminist scholar Gayatri Spivak, um, who's at Columbia University, said um, a number of years ago in a classic essay called Can the Subaltern Speak? Spivak warned that putting all our attention on minority women and migrant women who live in the West or at the borders of the West can be a distraction from the dispossession and exploitation of what she calls poor subaltern women, women who are living in conditions of acute violence and uh, dispossession. And we agree that the radical insecurity experienced by women refugees should not eclipse the struggle of conflict-affected women in conventionally defined conflict zones. And I could add to that, it should not eclipse uh, the struggle of women who are dispossessed and um, exploited by violent capitalist structures around the world. This being said, we do believe that the stories that refugee women bring to the table in women, peace and security conversations deepen our understanding of the radical interconnectedness of violence against conflict-affected women that takes place in the South and that which takes place in the North. In particular, it highlights the role of race in making some people more at risk of being um, made insecure or being violently assaulted than others. Such an understanding will render the women, peace and security community better poised to support equitable peace on a global scale. Thank you for that. That's a really good way of kind of summarizing it uh, to finish uh, for the main interview section. We're now going to move on to our feature section of the podcast where we look at the researchers behind the research and what compels them to explore their area of expertise in the world of war studies. So how did you both come to researching this agenda? So Audrey and I have actually worked together on a number of different projects that led us to these questions. We were both colleagues at an international non-governmental organization before we each returned to academia. 
And in this job, we worked on women, peace and security policy and its implementation in different areas of the world. But at the time, we did not really consider forced displacement to be a women, peace and security issue. And then around the same time as, as what was being called Europe's refugee crisis began to dominate newspaper headlines and take up a lot of space in our conversations with each other. It, there was a piece of research that Audrey conducted and I was involved in editing for the NATO Parliamentary Assembly in which countries were asked to report what they were doing in women, peace and security policy. And, and something that caught our attention was that some countries, notably, I think it was Turkey, um, reported that forced displacement and refugees were part of their women, peace and security policy. And that anomaly at the time made us curious and, and, and sparked our interest to examine further whether women, peace and security policy could speak to the concerns of refugees at Europe's borders and, and what was at stake in doing that. And ultimately, it led us to think about what the intent behind the agenda was and what kinds of different political work it could be made to do in, in different situations. So what's, what's the worst thing about conducting research into this? Does it feel like a constant battle and disappointment? Well, actually, it's the contrary for me. Because as limited sometimes progress might seem, it's also an opportunity to witness what so many women's organizations around the world are doing to try and improve their conditions of living and try to address the problems of, of insecurity they experience on an everyday basis. And that's been one of the powerful things about women, peace and security is it, it's, it's a very good um, networking stimulus. It encourages people from all kinds of different national regions, cultures, contexts to come together around this framework that, that has been constructed as globally relevant. So these alliances that are built in the context or under the umbrella of women, peace and security are really what I like to keep my attention on um, in order to not get, as, as you mentioned, too discouraged by the institutional and structural obstacles to making the objectives of the agenda a lived reality. Yeah, so there's something in this about the sort of solidarity of all kind of pushing for the same objectives around the world. Um, and, I mean, just on that, really, how much hope do you have in the next 20 years of WPS to radically alter the world for the better for women? So we've mentioned, we've talked kind of around the limitations of the WPS agenda, but ultimately it's it's fundamental limitation is, I believe, that it, it was not built to radically alter the world. If we think of the word radical, implying that addressing root causes and root questions 
um, of problems. And, and it wasn't necessarily seen as such by the women's organizations who lobbied the Security Council to adopt such an agenda either. It's a, it's a policy agenda that's located in the UN Security Council, and as such, it doesn't and could not address the structural issues of militarism, of deeply ingrained gender inequality, of global capitalism, of post-colonial politics. Um, and because of that, it's unable to address the root problems that are causing gendered insecurity. But that being said, the agenda has proven to be a useful tool, um, as Audrey mentioned, for building coalitions in transnational contexts between women's organizations. We've heard a lot of reports of women's organizations leveraging the agenda as something that is useful for them in their activism, in their organizing and in their work. So I would say that we can recognize that the agenda plays an important role and has value even if its radical potential is quite limited. And what's next for both of you in terms of your sort of plans and research projects? Currently, I'm working on a book manuscript, which turns to the question of how war and violent conflict are represented, specifically in, in the UK, the US, in so-called liberal democracies, and how they are made emotionally meaningful in cultural spaces such as war memorials and museums. It puzzles me that there is so much apathy and indifference um, on the part of a lot of people in the sense that people watch the news and that's us as well, right? So th this project is also a way of interrogating um, my own um, position in this and my own l lack of, you know, like active involvement in trying to, to change structures in a meaningful way. And so I've been interested in how we develop understandings of ourselves, meaning us Western countries, and why we get involved in warfare. And I've been interested in places like the Imperial War Museum or military museums in the United States as well, and how they shape our understanding of conflict and peace and, and the, the wars that we wage in the, in the name of democracy. So I'm interested in the views especially of um, minority curators and activists who are trying to change the representation of conflict in these spaces to make more space for people of color, make more space for the war stories of women and the difficulties that they are having in challenging um, representations of war and conflict that tend still to focus on a kind of white male representation of what war is like or how, what war feels like. I will, I will look forward to also continue working on questions of, of refugee and migration, hopefully with ICO again. <laughs> yeah, sadly, picking up on what Audrey just said, I think our, our research into questions of forced displacement and European policy around it have not become less topical or, or less urgent. So yes, I think we will continue interrogating these. Um, more broadly, I'm also I'm continuing to conduct research into the broader themes of, of how feminist activism and anti-colonial politics play out in, in engagements with institutions of state power, such as the Security Council, 
and particularly in security institutions such as the police and the military. So I am also currently working on a book project. I am writing a manuscript um, for a book that examines the politics of providing gender training to police and military peacekeepers. And that's an outgrowth of my doctoral work, which I'm, which I'm currently writing up. Oh, that sounds absolutely fascinating and both incredibly valuable projects. So we look forward to seeing uh, when those come to fruition. But just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on the War Studies podcast. It's been a real pleasure to have you and to discuss some of these really important issues in relation to women, peace and security um, in marking the, the 20th anniversary. So thanks for giving up your time. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen and Aisha Khan from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.